Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. This is our third with the paywall. And I just want to thank you all for subscribing. We've had this huge bump in subscriptions, uh, which is hugely gratifying. Uh, we'd love you to be able to listen to the entire episode. So if you haven't actually subscribed, do subscribe. Uh, and uh, I think you'll find it worthwhile. We'll give you a huge amount of the podcast for free, but then we're going to keep the last section of it for our paid subscribers. We need to give them a little bit more incentives and a little bit more thanks for what they're doing. Um, we are really viable at this point, and our traffic keeps going up, and we're grateful. Over 130,000 people of you now get this every week in your email entry, uh, and uh, we want all 130,000 of you to pay, <laughs> in which case I will disappear very quickly to a desert island. But nevertheless, <laughs> today we're having someone who you may not have heard of. Uh, in fact, few people probably at this point, I think it's fair to say, have heard of. But, you know, the dish is here not just for established hacks like me, but for new emergent voices. And one of the things I've mulled over the last couple of years as we've been uh, swimming in a tide of LGBTQIA2S plus content everywhere is the perspective of a, an actual real life homosexual man growing up and becoming coming of age in the 21st century uh, and what that's like and how that person can respond to what some of these new currents are saying and doing. And I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about this than someone I've come across online. He's a young writer in New York, and his name is Ben Appel. And he worked as a hairstylist for over a decade. And then he got a creative writing degree from Columbia University and started writing for publications like Newsweek, The Washington Examiner. He's close to publishing a memoir, which is what got me all excited, called Cis White Gay, about his liberation from what he calls the Church of Social Justice. You can also read Ben on Substack. Hi, you cis white gay. <laughs> How are you, Ben? Hi, good. How are you? Good. Welcome to the Dishcast. Um, tell me, um, tell me about where you were born and grew up, and what it was like for your particular generation, who's basically twenty years younger than me, uh, to come of age during a time when so much was beginning to break in the world of gay politics and the understanding of homosexuality in the 90s and 2000s? Well, yeah, I mean, I was born in 83. So, you know, I think like New York Times covered AIDS, I think for the first time in maybe 81. Um, you know, so I kind of grew up alongside alongside the virus and, uh, and you know, kind of, the the reality of the horror of that but also the fear-mongering um as well and i i do i grew up near baltimore and i grew up in a religious community like a fundamentalist religious community that you could you know call a cult if you want it has been compared to that tell me which one it was uh it was a covenant community called the lamb of god in um near baltimore and it was you know a catholic charismatic renewal community so it was part of that movement that began like late 60s and the 70s that kind of swept through the country 
um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, there was Word of God, People of Praise, Lamb of God. I had an uncle and aunt who joined a similar uh, charismatic Catholic revival uh, movement too. So yeah, I have some some experience of it. Yeah. So my parents joined in the late 70s when they were engaged to be married. And then um, so when I came along, I was the third out of four, my, my older sisters and then me. And then my, the, I have a younger brother. And um, we lived, you know, in this uh, they called it the cluster. Um, it, it started, you know, young 20 something kind of reformed hippies praising Jesus and having, you know, prayer studies and Bible readings um, up north of the city. And then they bought this farm where a lot of folks lived on the farm together in different houses. And then as they started to grow and young people started to kind of pair off and have families, they, they kind of said, OK, well, where can we kind of go settle? So they prayed about it. And, and God said, Catonsville, Maryland. And and so everybody, you know, packed their things and, and kind of settled in this this neighborhood Um you know, so I don't know, maybe every fourth, fifth house was a Lamb of God member. And um, so that was that was the culture that I grew up in, the world that I grew up in. And they they opened a, new, a school, really tiny school for all the kids that that were members of the community. And we all went there and, and you know, members of the community taught and, you know, Miss Melissa down the street drove the school bus. And, um, you know, it was a really kind of idyllic uh, upbringing because all my my best friends lived in the neighborhood. You know, my parents were together, um, and uh, you know, it was it was enjoyable. Um, it was a, I have fond memories. And what did it mean actually? I mean, like uh, like a regular Catholic would go to a regular mass. Mm-hmm. How would the uh, uh, this particular sub subgroup? Uh, conduct a mass would it would it be uh tambourines and yeah. falling out and yeah and people having speaking in tongues and yeah. all all that stuff yes so it was kind of like a mix of pentecostalism and catholicism you know it was that speaking in tongues and 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 praying over each other and and so on we did attend catholic mass once a week but really our primary kind of uh worship was prayer meetings that the community had weekly and then they would have smaller prayer groups um, at men's and women's houses in the community throughout the week but then of course during the day at school um, you know prayer was a huge part of every day I mean um, we spend a lot of time in prayer and worship especially you know maybe my third fourth fifth grade years um, I had a couple really, you know, zealous teachers, um, and there was a lot of a lot of that going on. Um, By zealous, can you uh, give me an example of one of them? Uh, one day that you remember? Yeah, there's there's one day I remember the fourth and fifth grade were combined in the same classroom because the school was so tiny, and there were about a hundred kids from kindergarten to eighth grade. And I was in the fourth grade um, and, you know, we're all praying over each other. And my and my teacher is, you know, somewhere in the classroom um, leading us and maybe strumming a guitar because pretty much all the teachers played guitar or tambourine. And uh, and then one young girl started crying. She was, you know, saying, Jesus, help me, Jesus, you know, and then I was kind of overcome by her 
the sound of her tears and I started crying as well. And then suddenly everybody in the classroom was was weeping and, you know, rolling on the floor and 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 saying, I see, you know, I see God and uh, all of these very kind of fantastical, um, you know, experiences. And um, and my teacher was thrilled. She she said, we've you know been anointed. This was a this was a um, a special moment. God's you know, the Holy Spirit is, you know, overtaking the classroom. And uh, so she was quick after that happened to to tell the headmaster and the other folks in the school. Um, and then it was maybe a week later, a couple of days later in chapel with the fourth and fifth grade. And then the middle school, the you know, my headmaster said, you know, something really amazing has happened in the fourth and fifth grade classroom The the Holy Spirit it took over the class. And let's try to make that happen here. And so we kind of recreated that um, in the chapel with the whole middle school. And so we're all in the in the chapel in the basement, you know, rolling around and crying and there's music and and we're all laying our hands on each other and per- speaking in tongues. And, you know, occasionally a kid would be slain in the spirit. You know, he would fall back and because he would be just struck by the Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, that those were some vivid memories. Did you at the time, did you believe the Holy Spirit was I did uh, was doing this? Yeah, I absolutely did. I mean, I I I was raised in it. I felt, um, you know, I had no filter for anything that I learned about God or what was, you know, taught to me about God, about Jesus, about morality. There was no critical thinking. Um, so it was, it was essentially, I was just, I was programmed to, to, uh, to believe what my mentors and my teachers believed. They were really kind of the, the, mediums between me and and god kind of like god's god's spokespeople if you will and what about other influences tv uh i guess the internet was just starting to get underway not yet so that was yeah so there were a lot of roles in the community so there the female women the women leaders were called handmaids the no. the male leaders were called coordinators and there were there were five coordinators and my father was a coordinator and uh, my mother much to her chagrin was never named handmaid um but she was what was called a head a district head so there was a whole hierarchy and at the top were the coordinators and the handmaids and then underneath them were the heads and then they would have you know um i don't i don't know mentees um, single people would live in the family's houses, that kind of thing. And everybody knew each other's secrets in business, in business. You know, there was, there were men's, women's, women's meetings and men's meetings, these prayer groups. And during this time, you know, they would kind of confess to their, to the other members in the group, their, their sinful thoughts or their, you know, lustful thoughts or. Were you ever part of those? No, no. So this was for, for the adults. Right. And then they would the heads would kind of bring all this information to the handmaids or the coordinators, and then they would talk about it at the top and then it would kind of trickle down the other side. So it was, it was a lot of, um, a lot of manipulation, a lot of coercion, a lot of shame, a lot of purity policing, a lot of groupthink. Um, and so there were, there, there became a lot of rules. It became more, once it linked up with this broader movement called, uh, uh, sword in the spirit, which was out of Ann Arbor, it became even more dogmatic. Um, and, you know, soon there were, you know, you could only watch an hour of TV a week and 
um, it just became it became more intense. And how long were you fully immersed in all of this? So until I was uh, 12. So the summer after my sixth grade year was when when we left that community. And the reason why was because my mother really wanted to leave. She was the one that wanted to join it in the late 70s because she had been raised Catholic, kind of fire and brimstone. And she, you know, wanted to have a faith. She wanted to have kids. So she wanted to raise her kids in, in a religious setting. And when she found this group, at the time, it was all about love and forgiveness and, and, and mercy and grace. And she was thrilled because it was so different from what she had experienced growing up. And then when it became really dogmatic is when she she couldn't take it anymore. Um, and so our leaving or was... when its dogmas finally were revealed to her, when she... Presume, did they get more radical as they went along? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was it was a, a slow progression, and um, and you know there were some some uh, issues in my parents' marriage as well. Did you uh, leave the neighborhood? We did. So it was you know they started talking about you know possibly leaving, and and at that time more families were leaving. There was uh, kind of a rupture of a sort. Um, the Catholic Archdiocese investigated the community um, for cult-like practices because people had come forth and and contacted, um, you know, the diocese saying, the archdiocese saying, you know, these these folks who who say they're Catholic, they're running this 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 Catholic group are are pulling people away from the church. Um, And the leader is 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 like a cult leader. And and um, this is the problems that it's caused in my family that was covered by Baltimore magazine in a long expose called the cult next door. I think that was in 94, 95. So where did you go then? So we moved. It was like 20 a 20 minute drive out west, like further west from Baltimore um, to a place called Howard County, Maryland. But it was a world away. you know, that the summer we went to the beach, my parents, my grandparents came down and stayed with us. And then halfway through the trip, my parents came back and moved all of our stuff to a new home and essentially a new life. And so we came out back to just a, a totally new life. And, you know, I went to public school where there's, you know, maybe, I don't know, 150, 200 kids in my grade rather than four, um, including me. And, you know, it's a secular a secular setting. So that must and, have been a huge culture shock. Well, it was. And, you know, speaking of the gay thing, you know, I was a super girly, effeminate kid. I mean, you know, I look back at home videos of myself and it's just like uh, next level. And and <laughs> what's next level? Like, you know, little, you know, Will and Grace, little Jack McFarlane, like, you know, was twirling. And, and I mean, I would put on little fashion shows and, and, and um, you know, dress in skirts and and um, and I I. I I carried myself in a really effeminate, flamboyant way. But in that setting, there wasn't any in crowd. So I didn't know how different I was. You know, there even was, in the even in the even in the, 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 in the community. Cult, yeah, because they didn't have any issues with you putting on dresses and, and being super. Well, funny. I wasn't I wasn't putting on dresses and wearing them to school. But like when I was when I was little, you know, just grabbing a okay. skirt for my sister and twirling around in it. Cause I liked the, I liked the sensation what, of it. Really? I tell me about that because it, it fascinates me. Um, where did that come? I mean, where does that come from? It's I didn't have that because mm-hmm. so it's 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 uh, it's not something I intuitively grasp. I think there are many pathways to being gay, actually. Uh, but 
can you explain why you did that just feel right to you at the time or was it just a were you also doing stuff that could be understood to be vaguely uh male gender oh for sure okay so you were also i was i was it was a you know i mean i loved my little ponies um i was obsessed but i you know i was very and again this is we're talking in gender terms here but i was very athletic as well um, you know, so, uh, I, d- I loved playing sports and not as much. I didn't really love watching them, but I loved playing. Mm. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, it was all different types of things, but it's, I, I think maybe, you know, too, I, I had two older sisters, so they were a big influence in my life. I wanted to be cool like them. You know, I, I developed a lot and of did the they, similar like you, So you weren't subjected by your parents to any disapproval for this baby? Not really. No, because like I said, we were, it was all about. I was just a good little Christian boy who mm. praised Jesus and prayed and and it wasn't it was a it was an asexual uh you know any kind of sex was taboo. Um that came out in all kinds of different ways in the community and um you know when there's this kind of pressure cooker of sexual repression it can kind of erupt in 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 unhealthy ways um as you can imagine but um you know, when I'm a kid, you know, prior to sexual maturity, I, I just had my friends, I had my crushes, I and that was it. Um, my first crush I remember on a boy was Elijah Wood when I saw him in a movie. <laughs> um, you know, when I was nine years old, maybe, but I, at the time, I, I, I mean, I was obsessed with them. You know, I wanted his picture on my wall, but it was, it was, you know, it wasn't, it was an innocent, innocent kind of thing. Yeah, I, I was obsessed with. Um... With Mark Lester and Jack Wilde from the movie Oliver. There you go. Uh, Oliver Twist and the Artful Dodger that I saw in a big musical. Roughly the same age, probably. Um, And I couldn't explain it, but I cut their pictures out of the newspaper. And I desperately wanted to see another movie that they were in, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a huge (laughs) disappointment, I remember. Um, but I was, uh, and again, this was not, this was very distinct from post-puberty horniness. This was just crush sort of fantasy uh, uh, longing in some weird, not weird, because it's very human, in, in an inchoate way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, so tell me what happens when did puberty hit? When, well, did, when did this happen? Did happen? Before or after the cult? It was right at like when we were leaving it. I right. mean, so, you know, so here I'm in, in this cloistered world, but we were we weren't completely separate from the real the real world. Like we belonged to a public pool in the neighborhood. And that was where I first started getting taunted. Um, mm. I, you know, someone said, oh, are you gay? I, I, it was it's such a vague memory. I'm sure I, I blocked it out. But, you know gay was the epitome of of evil of everything it, the embodiment of evil of everything that i had learned um you know in that community uh have they talked much about gayness in the yeah in the in context the of of the bible i mean sodomy was a vocabulary word in my sixth grade bible class right you know so it was it was it was stressed you know there was there I, you know we would i remember coming across a, a focus on the family article and it was at a friend's house and it was open to this to this you know gay pride parade images of these two guys dressed in leather and they were holding hands or something and and I don't know who who it was that explained it to me I think it might have been my friend's mom but it was just like these these are the bad guys they want to do bad things to kids 
they're going to hell, they're going to get AIDS, they're going to die, they get what they deserve kind of thing. Um, you know, we, we prayed in, in, in prayer group for people with AIDS, but it was mostly the kids in Africa who, who, you know, who had AIDS and, and it wasn't, victims. right. It wasn't, it Not wasn't the, guilty the folks victims. who, right. So, um, you know, I, I was just stock full of all of, of that, that dogma and those beliefs. And then to kind of have the finger pointed at me, like, this is what you are. I, you know, I, I freaked. Um, and so you know, we moved to this new neighborhood and I was convinced that this was going to follow me there because it was, it was becoming so apparent to me how different I was and that I couldn't hide this. And I thought I was, I mean, I was scared shitless. You know, I, this became particularly acute because of puberty that that kind of altered stuff or was it, was it already there? Well, it was already there. And I think, I just didn't know how different I was because I was in this, this cloister. There wasn't any, like I said, there wasn't any in crowd. I was just, I was just a kid. And amazingly, you were less taunted right. within that church Absolutely. context Absolutely. than outside of it. Yeah. Now, who knows what, what would have happened if, if I would have stayed on it? Yeah, well, right, if I would right. have stayed on. Right, right. I mean, if I would have continued in that school, I, I, I have very little doubt that I would have ended up in seminary. You know, um, I would have, you know had so much turmoil and conflict about my sexuality. And I, and I, and I know, um, you know, there was another gay man in that community who actually died last year who, you know, was got a sex change. Then he changed back. And then he, you know, I mean, he had a miserable, really pained existence um, within that context. Um, and, but it's interesting you, cause again, this is something that people outside the world find hard to understand, but is, is kind of critical also to understanding what happened in the Catholic Church, which is that so many kids in your position confronting these sudden terrifying possibilities for themselves, uh, as a response, decide to double down on the dogma and become priests mm -hmm. or go into the seminary, which also has the advantage of giving you cover for being single for the rest of your life. Right. You don't. You you can avoid, and your mom and dad are psyched mm -hmm. if the kid is a pre going to be a priest. Mm -hmm. So you also replace possible rejection with absolute affirmation. Uh, that this is not uncommon, and it has never been uncommon. Mm -hmm. uh, and when people ask, you know, why is roughly forty percent of the Catholic priesthood homosexual? This is a key to it. Yeah. It's and it and it's not healthy. I mean, let's put it that way. There are healthy ways for gay people to be priests, yeah, and there are unhealthy ways. And it seems to me that in the past, the unhealthy ways predominated in in a way that, you know, is one of the strands to understand in the hideous reality of the sex abuse crisis that we're dealing with: sexually broken, conflicted, extremely agonized people who haven't come to terms with, haven't dealt with. What they're actually, who they actually are yet. Um, and then they act out in ways that you do if you haven't integrated those parts of yourself in your own. So I sort of, as a kid, I felt that I could feel that destiny beckoning too. I could feel it. I, I could feel like, well, I couldn't imagine getting married. That was not something that could even get into my head like everyone else. 
So what do I do when I grow up? Like, what, who am I going to be? I had no, it was like some great void mm-hmm. that I had no idea how to fill. Um, anyway, enough about me. You're, you're now in the public school. How are they, and they're taunting you all the time? Is this a... So, you know, I start school, you know, from the first week it was, are you a boy or a girl? You know, you're a faggot, uh, you know, all those things. And I would go home crying, but I didn't want to tell my mom what they were saying because I didn't want to put any ideas in her head. Although, of course, she knew that I was likely gay from a really early age, probably around three or four. Um, she told you that? She did tell me years later. Yeah. Um, that do you think mothers always know? I think so. Yeah, I think they do. I Dads think they can do. be in denial, but mothers not so right, much. Right, right. And... Uh, so uh, my coping mechanism was I became I developed a form of OCD called scrupulosity. So I would stay up all night praying um, because I was convinced that, you know, all these bad things that were happening were because of me or if if only I could be perfect, if only God could forgive me, if only I could, you know, phrase this this repentance prayer in the right way, he would hear it. And the pain would stop, the taunting would stop, the you know the this the evil would stop, you know whatever. Um, it just it, I could control. You know, OCD is a lot about control and kind of having this false belief that you can control things through your compulsions, and that was my compulsion. It was it was prayer, and so you know it it went into the daytime and I would feel like I had to do the sign of the cross so many times. And then I had to leave class and go kneel on the bathroom floor and the, in, in, in the boys' bathroom praying, nobody would come in, um, you know, and see me, um, because I felt like I, I had to, God wanted me to, because, um, I was such a, a, a bad person. And, uh, and, and all of these things were happening because of me. I had either abandoned God, God had abandoned me. I didn't really know. But leaving that community and not having those teachers, those mentors, that all my friends, we were, all our ties were severed, um, kids who I knew since infancy. Um, and uh, it was it was a and, the, you know, things fell apart at home really dramatically. My, my parents split up and stuff like that. And that so you know, the OCD might year. have been also related to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so to, to self-medicate, I, I ended up drinking. I would drink um, even by myself when I was 12. 13 years old um, in my bedroom really? um, just to anesthetize. Yeah, absolutely. What, 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 where did you find the, the drink? Was it, in the you know, it was, I mean, uh, and what was it? Was it whiskey? Was no, it? it was beer. There were like, I remember uh, taking, I, I, my dad maybe had like four beers in the fridge. I mean, you know, we didn't really have a lot of alcohol in the house growing up. Um, but if I, if we did, I would, you know, take one and, and go upstairs and chug it really quickly. And, um, you know, and then also kids in the neighborhood, there were, had older siblings and we would kind of drink and, and, um, and, you know, act out together on the weekends. It didn't become a daily occurrence, but whenever I could get my hands on it, um, I, I It's funny, the OCD stuff, because I, I went through a phase exactly like that, um, at roughly the same age, actually 10 or 11 or 12, uh, because I was also, my household was also in constant drama, trauma, chaos, uh, and and I would I would literally this is crazy I know but I would not I would go walk from when I had to get the bus home from school I would avoid treading on any of the cracks in the pavement and if I did I would retrace my steps as if 
that was a way in which I would be okay, that that would guarantee that God was not mm -hmm. going to hurt me. Anything. I would, I would, again, I do little signs of the crosses in my exercise mm -hmm. books. I would, in art class, I drew pictures of the crucifixion. Uh, I completely doubled down on mastering the entire magisterium. <laughs> I was obsessed with the finer points of transubstantiation. I was, uh, uh, I read church history. I, as an English, Irish Catholic boy, I became obsessed with the Reformation. All these things happened in the absence of any kind of social life, let alone sexual life as a, as a young man or as, as a teenager. Um, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it, how we, how we psychologically cope. Mm -hmm. But you can also begin to see the origins of, of addiction, uh, of self-medication, of, of shame, mm -hmm. of, of very and – and again, it's important. We're talking about the 90s, right, mm -hmm. at this point? Yeah, so, mid-90s. Mid-90s, um, which was – you know, which 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 is not that long ago, even mm -hmm. though it's, it feels like a mm -hmm. a universe away. Um, and I think it's kind of the reason I think about that is I think it's important because it's so easy for many of us to forget. I think that's the key thing about gay kids. Gay kids are randomly distributed. It's not like we have gay families that mm -hmm. that rear us and bring us up and teach us the traditions, or insulate us from hatred or hostility or insecurity we are in every town so a huge number of us uh, are the same proportion as in america as a whole are brought up in quite conservative often religious often rural uh and it's as if those kids don't exist for a lot of for a lot of what you hear in the activist movement and they see they never really if I were to criticize, I would criticize, but one of the criticisms I would make is that do they understand what it is saying to the kids out there hearing this? That to be gay, you have to be this, you have to identify with this, you have to identify with that. Uh, in ways that as a kid, when I was shown those things I had to identify with, for me, they were like, well, that means I'm not gay because I'm not like any of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, did you have, did any of that, uh, happened to you, and and let me let me. How did you how did you explicitly come to terms with the fact that you were oh, man. gay? Like when was I guess when you first started uh, hit puberty? Yeah, I mean I I hit puberty it, it, when I started smoking pot when I was sixteen. That became a daily exercise for me, and that became a like a buffer between, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it it made things less scary. I, I could intellectualize things more rather than being so emotional and so afraid the, 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 the anxiety wasn't so physical. It was, I could, I could kind of deconstruct things in my brain and, and find the humor in the, in it. Um, I you get a little distance from it. I got distance from it. And, uh, but you know, that led to other substances and, 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 you know, before long I was using other things as well, you know, by my senior year in high school and, my mental health just really dovetailed. I graduated from high school. I went to to university for a semester, and um, and that was in fall two thousand one. And then at the end of that semester, I was in such bad shape that I that I decided, you know, I'm going to drop out. I'm going to go, you know, work or travel, find myself. 
um, you know, following February, I was in Mardi Gras, New Orleans, you know, as one does, they go there to find themselves, you know, and uh, lucky I came home alive from that trip, um, went on a big cocaine binge. A couple weeks later, I was in the psych ward for the first time um, out of, I think, like three or four visits that year. Um, just total, total breakdown, um, drug induced. And that was where I really crashed and burned. And I'm, I was only 19. Um, so it, it, it got really bad really quickly. Um, and I kind of scraped myself along the bottom for about a year. Um, and then I landed this random apprenticeship as a, as a hairstylist, you know, cosmetology apprenticeship in, in, uh, elegant city, Maryland, not far from where we lived near Baltimore. And, you know, a few months into that, I overheard a young woman talking about her recovery to my, my boss. And I said, you know, I need help. And, and, and that was it. I got, I ended up getting clean and sober in a 12 step program when I was 20. Um, and I, so I've stayed in that, in that, uh, program since then. Um, in fact, you know, it's, I, I did stay sober for a couple of years and then I, I picked up a drink, but I, you know, kept going back and, 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 you know, sticking with that. And today is actually my sober anniversary. It's actually 17 years today. Um, wow. Yeah. So congratulations. Um, thanks. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's an incredible, it's an incredible struggle. Mm-hmm. I know I've seen it. Yeah. And uh, you deserve every that is that is born out of blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You yeah. know. Uh, uh, tell me, I'm curious how your mother responded to all this. Presumably, you were still were you living with her at that point. I was. Yeah, my dad. My dad moved out when I was like 13. Um, and are you talking about the gay stuff? Are you talking what do you what do you do about? Well, they're all interconnected. Of interconnected course, but the yeah. gay stuff, but but then the so but then the self medication stuff. Right. So my mom, you know, here I am. My mom was, you know, she wanted to be a handmaid in this in this community called the Lamb of God. You know, a year later, she was, you know, dating and you know, uh, out on the town and. Um, it was a liberation for her um, as well to be out of that community. Um, and out of the marriage. And out of the marriage. Um, so it was a really, you know, we were always very close, she and I. Um, I became her little confidant, you know, I think his gay son's. You know, and mothers, books and books and books could be written about I know. that dynamic. And yeah, but it's fascinating still, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Why do you? Th- why? Let's let's be all rogany here. <laughs> like, why do you, I think? Wh- wh- what is that? Because- I think it's because well, you know, with with my sisters, they were teenagers. Um, you know, they had, you know, I I mean, teenage boys are difficult. Teenage girls are difficult, especially to their mothers. You know, there's a lot of uh, rebellion, talking back. There's not so much, um, you know, peace and and feeling really safe and comfortable. Then there's me, you know, the third in line who's 12, 13, this sweet little gay boy that, um, you know, it, 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 it was, I was just the right, right person for that. Um, Did you, were you in danger of becoming a sort of replacement husband for your mother? Absolutely. But see, the thing is, is that she was very, it wasn't. 
in, in she would probably disagree and say, oh, my God, all I wanted to do was find a new dad for you kids um, or, you know, some stability. Um, but I was suddenly at 12, 13, this little gay boy who was tormented in school, all of these issues, the kind of the the man of of the house, but also the 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 confidant and the. And in a lot of ways, what took me a long time to reconcile was I became the person that would kind of absolve my mother of her sins. Um, she f- had a, a terribly guilty conscience for for divorcing my dad and for breaking up the family because she was the one that really wanted that to happen. And I wanted her, it made me sad to see her sad. It made me sad to see her guilty. And so, you know, if she would make a mistake or, you know, she was absent or unavailable emotionally, and then she would come back and say, I'm so sorry, my immediate response was to say, it's okay, it's okay. I just wanted to constantly absolve her because I didn't want her to be in pain, but it never gave me the opportunity to actually feel um, some of the hurt or or anger or resentment towards her for maybe some of the mistakes that she did make, which every parent makes in one way or, or another. Not th- those same mistakes, but a different... Um, well, you're not in your like 12, 13, 14, you're really not in a position. No. And it it sounds in retrospect completely understandable and empathizable the way your mother treated you really as someone that she could rely on and talk to who loved her unconditionally and vice versa but she's not letting you grow up and she's not really being a mother and she's and she's it 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 is objectively even though it's subjectively loving it's objectively abusive in the sense that you are being used in a way that a son shouldn't really be used mm-hmm. i mean I it's pushing is I'm, is that my pushing no, I mean it. It is a, the the. I mean that's what I, I've done. I've dealt with a lot of this in therapy myself. Mm-hmm, so yeah. I, I, I totally, I, I, I totally get it. Yeah, I think that I think abused is a strong word. Mm-hmm. Not that it hasn't cr- crossed my mind. I haven't thought that word. You know, whether or said it aloud in therapy sessions or to my husband or to a friend or something like that. Um, but. It's just a, it's a strong word, um, you know, and it's a strong word because, you know, my mother and I have a good relationship now. And um, so there's that pull in me that wants to protect her still. Of course. Yeah. And me, too. Um, I, I totally understand that. But that means that we're still in that dynamic, of mm-hmm. course. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. So here we are. Your gayness is coming out, you, you, and, and you decide after your crash and burn, you'll be a hairdresser. How gay is that? It's the gayest. It's the gayest. It's fucking super gay. I mean, and the thing is, is that so? You know, <laughs> and why is it super gay? Like, whether like let's let's unpack that too. Why are so many people who cut hair who are men are gay? I, well, I mean, you know, you you do have. A, a large female clientele base. Right. Um, but why would they want gay men rather than women? Um, oh my gosh. Do you really want, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. They just know how to do things. Yeah. I mean, there's this, <laughs> well, with, with They're survivors, with women, 
<laughs> and gay men, there is a it's a complicated dynamic because you're a man, you're a male, you're right. satisfying some if you're saying that if you're a gay man and you're helping a woman look pretty helping her feel good about herself and saying that she's beautiful to hear that from a man can be very different experience than hearing it from a woman yeah um there's no competition involved there's right. no there's no digs it's it's right. you're fabulous you're amazing and there's this this feeling of of being really um blown up and and maybe even they're actually interested as opposed to straight men who right. are really not that interested. Well, right. How do you, how, how are you doing your perm? Uh, what color hair do you want? I mean, that's just not something that many straight men are particularly, I mean, they like the results, I'm sure, and they're down with it all, but right. the, the ability, uh, and this is where I wonder whether I'm really gay because I just, the idea of talking, talking to countless women and telling them how fabulous they are does not, is not my idea of a, of a great time. Well, in my, you know, I had a lot, I, I basically kind of, tr uh, trans transposed is the right word. I kind of just mapped my dynamic with my mother onto uh, all of my relationships with my uh, female clients. So hundreds, you know, of women, which I, they loved, which they loved. Um, I had a huge following. Um, and, it's, and isn't it interesting how a hairdresser can get a huge following? Yeah. Yeah, it's a the relationship between the hairdresser and the client is fascinating. It's it like is. when with dudes also, it's like uh, I'm cheating on my barber, you know. Or mm -hmm. you, 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 the, people will say that they'll be like, "Wow, I kind of cheated with my barber this week. I'm trying another one." As if there's some sort of it's a service. It's it's it's. Uh, but yet it's not. It's also I guess it's so intimate. You're touching people's heads. You're touching That's their the faces. You you. Re Who else does that in right. society except for your lover or your spouse or um, your doctor or your or your I doctor? Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. There's that that physical physical touch. You see them every maybe four weeks, six weeks on the dot. Um, I mean, I had clients that, I, and, and it wasn't that I. You know, I. It was. Maybe 30% of it was the work that I did. 70% of it was the experience I gave them and the relationship that we had and right. how I made them feel and listened and heard. You know, I, I can't tell you how many clients would say, I, I could not wait to get here today because I needed to talk to you. Or, you know, I've never told anybody this, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. I mean, it was <clears throat> when I when I left that profession to go back to school to to move up to New York to go to Columbia and I broke that news to my clients. There, there were there was one individual that that actually wept, wept. I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, it was it was as if, you know, it was. There's just there there was a strong dependence. You might have there. been the most important man in her life. It and, could have been, and she may not have been getting any emotional support or interest from her husband, um, or from the boyfriend or whatever. And I could have been. Uh, yeah, and I think also the the parallel with the relationship with the mother is fascinating too because mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to I I, I uh, why did I why did I form such a bond with my mom, um, uh, and why was she so. Uh, prepared to uh, treat me as a confident, as, you, as mm -hmm. a, an adult confident, even though I was a 12-year-old boy. 
and one's inability to ever extract oneself for a good for good reasons uh, from the love. It's 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 primal. It's the love of mothers is one of the most extraordinary forces in the universe. It's yep. it's it's a deep, profound uh, force for good in human society and. Uh, and one of the reasons I, you know, one of the reasons, one of the good things about Catholicism is that it understands that and has sacralized it and institutionalized it in a way that uh, Protestants have kind of forgotten. Mm. Even though there are plenty of arguments about what the Catholic Church says about mothers and yeah. women, it can be critiqued very potently. But the appreciation of motherhood and of that relationship between mother and child, so important and irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, did you develop relationships while you're cutting hair with with dudes? Yeah. So, where did you meet them? Well, you know, when I I came out when I was about seventeen or eighteen, and I don't know if this was the experience for you, and I'm sure that this is the experience for a lot of gay men who are listening and women, I imagine. You know, you don't just come out and then you're done. It's like a it's a process. You kind of find yourself coming out over and over and over again. You know, you can come out to your closest friends, but then, you know, two months later, you run into an old friend that you haven't seen for six months. You're coming out all over again. Um, or I was lucky because mine was in the national news. Well, there you go. There you go. So that's a really easy way to do it. <laughs> yeah. To make yourself nationally notorious. Yes. For being openly gay. There you go. At the age of 23 five or whatever I was. Everybody learns at the same time. That's actually really And convenient. then it's all over with. And yeah. every now and again, you come across someone who has no clue and it's really fun. I yeah. really enjoy it. Uh, um, and of course, I'm not exactly, I'm world famous in Poland. You know, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Jerry Seinfeld or someone. It's not like everyone recognizes it. But um, I haven't usually, every now and again, I have to correct people a little bit, just gently. I don't, I mean, I certainly am not offended if someone assumes that I represent 95% of humanity mm-hmm. as opposed to the 5%. It seems like a good guess. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I was lucky. I understand why in all these circumstances you have to kind of – did you – how did you think – how how did you think of yourself? Were you, did you think of yourself as I'm a gay man now? Yeah. You know, I mean, I did. I, I thought of myself – as a, I mean, look, I like I said, I got sober. All of this stuff was waiting for me the second I stopped using. I didn't have this this medication anymore. So, I mean, as you can imagine, all of that old religious guilt and and um, you know, it it all came bubbling up. It was not a pretty fun time. It was a long uphill battle, um, especially in my early early and mid twenties. I was very tormented. I was a very tormented homosexual. Um, you know, the sex that I had, I would go to rest stops on Route 95 between Baltimore and D.C. and 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 meet guys there. Or, you know, that was around the time gay.com, um, the chat rooms, uh, meeting meeting guys that way or Craigslist. You know, there was that there was a, a secrecy to it, a shame. I didn't want anybody to know. Whereas if you went to the local gay bar and hung out, you, well, that would be a whole different. It would be a whole different thing. And I, but again, I wasn't drinking. 
Right. So I, you know, what about? Well, there are gay restaurants, and there are right uh, uh, predominantly gay restaurants. Well, what are. really changed for me was when I in my t- in twelve step rooms there were you know gay identified meetings in the city that I started connecting with other gay men there, and that was when things really really changed for me. Yeah, um, because I was connecting with other other people, and you know you think you're so terminally unique. You know your story. You know you talk about your 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 religious shame or your OCD or you know your mother or whatever, and you realize that you're just kind of run of the mill in a lot of ways. You yeah, know? like you and me have found out we've we've had pretty much the same yeah. experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure different, but we're also. I mean, it shows how universal it is because mm-hmm. we're talking about 20 years difference here right. too right. between the two generations. So this shit is never over in mm-hmm. a way, and probably will never be over. I mean, it can be a lot better. And it is, I think, infinitely better for kids growing up today. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, you're a cis white gay male. Mm -hmm. When did you realize that you were part of the oppressor class? You know, it was my first, probably my first semester at Columbia. I mean, you know, and I I was telling Chris before uh, we met you know, the impetus that for for going back to school was my work. Uh, I just did some light volunteering for Maryland's marriage equality campaign in 2012. You know, I met my husband, now husband, in 2011. And I uh, suddenly had a hat in the ring. You know, prior to that, it was like, you know, sure, for equality's sake, hopefully, you know, gay marriage will be an opportunity for, for gays. But I, I couldn't care less. I don't think gays are even supposed to be monogamous, you know, et cetera. Um, or capable of it or whatever. I, I, I didn't even know what I thought, but I certainly had not been truly in love or experienced this uh, a, a longing for somebody where I wanted to spend the rest of my life with them. And I didn't even think that, that was a real possibility for me. Um, and then when I met him, things changed. You know, three months in, I was like, I want to marry this guy. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, there was movement in the Maryland state legislature. Um and uh, let's see, the end of 2011, uh, or no, maybe the beginning of 2012, that's what it was, in, this, in the legislature it passed, but with an addendum, you know, uh, Republicans or conservatives wanted, you know, it not to go into effect until January 1st, 2013, so that it could give um, people in the state the opportunity to collect enough signatures to put it on the November ballot to overturn it via referendum, kind of like Prop 8. So it passes in the legislature, but it's not legal yet. And so then we have this long campaign of of getting people to vote yes on question six, which was, do you think, you know, uh, gays and lesbians should have uh, the right to civil marriage, et cetera. And so I, you know, volunteered for that, did some electioneering. Um, and on election day in 2012, this was Obama's, you know, the beginning of a second term, you know, when he was elected that day. I was convinced we were going to lose, you know, because I was like, there's no way that public opinion is on my side um, with this. And this is this is this would be too good to be true. And we won, um, as you remember, um, you know, uh, and and the margin was like 52 to 48 percent. But I couldn't believe it. Like, I couldn't believe that the majority of Maryland voters thought that I it wasn't so much like, oh, I have the right to marry, but that I'm good you know, with a capital G, like I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe. I'm, 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 I'm not, 
bad, evil, deviant. I, it, there was just this. It it, it gave me it, it opened up in something inside me. It just gave me hope. And it also lit this fire for social justice within me. I mean, I drove home that night after watching the numbers come in at the Baltimore soundstage. The governor was there and, you know, a bunch of other people that were involved in the campaign. And my sister, my oldest sister was there. And I remember driving home and thinking, I never want to lose this feeling. I want to keep chasing this feeling. Like, what can I do to keep chasing this feeling? I became so impassioned to to get involved in activism. And that was 2012. You know, I go back to my hairdressing gig, but, you know, I'm getting more like the following. And maybe it was January. There was a trans rights legislation um, bill in Maryland that was, you know, uh, outlawing discrimination, I think, in the workplace, maybe in housing, et cetera. So I went to this rally and I spoke to senators about the importance of legislating this. And it didn't pass that year. I think it passed the following year. But I was like, you know, well, what's next? Oh, obviously, the the trans rights, you know crusade campaign like that's 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 what's next on the agenda i mean obergeville hadn't even happened yet so it wasn't like a nationwide uh you know gay marriage wasn't nationwide yet so there was a lot of work still to do there but um you know it kind of just seemed like the t was the natural progression of of okay who to fight so for that next. was part of the reason you went to columbia so i did so i i and, and columbia university itself Col- right journalism school or no just- columbia university yeah so it was my husband and I got married in October 2014. Two months later, Christmas Eve, we're downtown in Baltimore having dinner. And I said to him, I want to do more with my life. I want to be a writer. I want to be an activist. I want to go back to school. I don't want to be a hairdresser anymore. And he's like, you have to go for it then. You just have to go for it. And he said, you know, with all that stuff, it sounds like you would want to be in New York. And I said, yes, absolutely. I would want to be in New York. And, you know, he he works from home. So he said, well, I, and he lived there before. He's like, that would be great. Um, so I, two weeks later, I was enrolled in community college. I went to community college for a year while working full time just to kind of beef up a resume, get a 4.0 and get letters of recommendation. Um, and I, and I discovered this at Columbia, they have for non-traditional students, it's called the school of general studies. So Columbia is, you know, like CC Columbia college, there's Barnard, which is the women's school. There's CIS, which is, you know, engineering, um, you know, and, and general studies. And so everybody's matriculated in together and general studies requires you to have a break of one or more years in your, in your, in your college education. So you were, you know, by the time you got to Columbia as an I'm in my thirties, I'm in my, I'm in my thirties. Yeah. So, you know, I thought that's what I want to do. I want to get this education there. I want to, you know, uh, be a writer. So we moved. Tell me what you encountered at Columbia. Well, you know, I was, look, 2016, the election comes around. I mean, I'm, I was a nervous wreck that year. I, I had this feeling that Trump was going to win and I was devastated. I mean, I was just a ball of nerves and I was, it was, it was a, it was a dark, a dark day. It was. Um, and so I thought, well, thank fucking God I'm, you know, going to this progressive school where I can exist in this liberal bubble with like-minded folks and hashtag resist, um, and kumbaya for the next three and a half years. Like, thank God I'm not staying in this purple town. Um, in, in, you know, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to learn. I'm going to be a, an educated activist. I'm going to fight back and I, I'm going to actually do something. Um, and so, you know, my first semester of school began the week that he was inaugurated and um, in January 2020 and I'm sorry, January 2017. And I was on fire. 
you know, like, I mean, here, you know, he here he's, you know, introducing the Muslim ban and the trans military ban and, and, you know, all these things. And, you know, we have an evangelical as his vice president. And, and, and so I hit the ground running, you know, like I'm like, I'm writing for Columbia Daily Spectator. I do a, 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 a write a long piece on, you know, the stigmatization of gay men with HIV and, and I, um, and like on campus, especially, or, you know, the history of that, because, because Columbia is actually a, a big part of that response in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I take this human rights readings and human rights class and I'm, I'm researching the history of, of the more majority in the Christian right and the anti-gay discourse and, and, and language there. And then I write an op-ed for HuffPost and, um, I'm, I'm joining, you're getting getting your woke on. I am getting my woke on. I mean, I'm, I'm joining in the afternoon prayer with the Muslims on like the, on the, the quad in solidarity with the, with the Muslim students, um, you know, in the face of, of all of this, um, all of these things that they were facing. The immigration stuff. With the immigration stuff. Yeah. And I was thrilled. I mean, I was, I was, I had arrived, you know? Um, so the question becomes what happened, what happened, it started, it was, it was like a slow, it was a slow realization that things were not as I, as I thought that thought they were actually, I, you know, what really began was, you know, I, the identitarianism of it. I was seen as this cis, which is a word that I wasn't even familiar with at the time. You know, I just learned this in 2017, a cisgender white male. And I, and I wasn't, I didn't really, I, you know, part of my coping mechanism to, you know, survive as a kid, I defeminized myself, you know, I butched myself up and, and I, and I, you know, threw out my Mariah Carey CDs and, you know, bought Nirvana and cut my hair and, you know, (laughs) all this stuff. And, you know, so I, and that just has carried on. I, I'm not an extremely flamboyant or effeminate gay man most of the time. And so maybe people can't always tell, so here I am as just this other, you know, cis, straight seeming um, uh, white guy. And and so it was like in class, we would be talking about, you know, whether it be something related to feminism or human rights or or LGBT anything. And I would comment and my the way that I spoke about it would be received in the exact opposite way that I had actually said, not that I had intended, but that I had actually said. So give me an example. Um, I remember we were talking about in a, it was a course called contemporary Islamic civilization. And we were talking about, you know, gender norms and roles um, in, in the Muslim world. And we were talking about sexuality and we were, someone had suggested that perhaps effeminate gay men had a harder time let's say in Iran than than butch women or or there was like a in in some ways um you know that they they get more attention or get more harassment um and i said well you know that's because in that culture but in many cultures you know for a man to behave effeminately or to act like a woman he is considered to be degrading himself um and uh, you know, so I think that that's why sometimes it might be a little bit easier for for women who are a little bit on the more on the masculine side. And, you know, 
which is a feminist sentiment, you know? Right. And a young woman raised her hand and said, there is nothing easier about being a woman. Just, you know, strongly were like, and I thought, um, well, what the hell happened? And the whole class was silent. You know, the, the, the TA, cause it was in a discussion section. He kind of said, well, okay, let's move on, you know? And after class, I went up to the young woman and I said, I said, Hey, I was like, what did you find? You know, um, I said, Hey, I'm Ben, you know, what did you find like that you disagreed with? And she said, she looked at me and she said, wait, what, what did you say again? Like it was, she didn't even remember. She, it, she was just doing her duty to call out the white guy who said, who dared to make a claim about feminism, about gayness, about anything. You know, and that was where it started to be like, oh, I, I really have to qualify here. And of course, before long, being gay certainly wasn't enough. I mean, gays were, cis gays were just as bad or as bad as the straight white guys, um, arguably worse in some respects. Why, but it was. Why would we be worse? Well, oh man. According to this, this dogma. Yeah. Hi there. Well, this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.